You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us here for AOA. We've got a lot of exciting issues to discuss on today's program. Here in just a bit, we're going to take a look at the cattle market. Ethan Lane, Vice President of Government Affairs at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, will join us. The speaker issue has been sorted out in the House. What does that mean for the Ag Committee? What does that mean for livestock producers? Ethan will fill us in here in segment two. And then in segment three, we're going to talk with Arlen Suderman. He's the Chief Commodities Economist at Stonex. He is keeping an eye on what is moving in these markets as we prepare for Thursday's USDA WASDE report, the World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates report. We'll get those uh, thoughts from Arlen Suderman here in segment three. But before we do all of that, we're going to be be talking about agriculture around the world, specifically agriculture over in Europe. Here over the past month, we've had several guests on the program who have discussed the different challenges that European producers are facing. And now we're going to dive in a little bit deeper. Joining us now is Bill Wirtz. He's a senior policy analyst at the Consumer Choice Center, lives over in the European Union. And Bill, it is tough to be a farmer in the EU, and it sounds like it's going to be getting harder. Thanks, Mike, for having me. Absolutely. That's uh, that's definitely the case because the EU is trying to revamp the entire food system uh, over here in Europe, and uh, not everybody's happy. No, they certainly aren't. And Bill, when we talk about what the EU is proposing, we've got to come down to some of the big differences of definition, namely the way they assess risk. Europeans versus the U.S., they use a hazard-based assessment. We use a risk-based assessment. What's the difference? So the difference is the possibility that something might actually happen. So uh, the European Food Safety Authority actually even has, which is the European Union's agency to assess uh, uh, risk, uh, actually has a, um, a, a cool graphic on their website where they say the difference between hazard and risk is the difference on uh, a shark being in the sea and you sh swimming with a shark. So that is a crucial difference. It's it's the exposure level. So a couple of years ago, there was a German environmental group that said, oh, um, glyphosate has been found in beer. And then the German ministry came back and said, yes, that's true. However, you'd have to drink a thousand liters of beer a day in order for that to affect you. And I'd reckon if you drink a thousand liters of beer a day, um, your glyphosate exposure is not going to be your biggest problem. Right. Yeah, there are going to be other issues of concern. But that hazard versus risk, Bill, this difference spills out into policymaking. And why does the hazard approach encompass so much more? Um, it encompasses so much more because what, what we what we see now in Europe is that we've taken a nine 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 approach uh, to uh, to all the to all the uh, uh, new innovations in agriculture so you see this from everything from crop protection chemicals to genetic engineering uh, the EU bases everything on can we find maybe an additional study that this could pour, uh, that this could cause a problem for consumers and then says uh, we should not allow it so this is why uh, compared to the United States, uh, European agriculture is considerably less efficient and also less sustainable. If you actually compare the numbers, what we see um, is that Europe's focus on organic agriculture 
um, makes it so that we cannot actually reduce carbon dioxide emissions because organic agriculture needs a lot more input. Uh, so a lot of these examples lead to a situation where food is more expensive and less sustainable in Europe than it is in the US. And yet the Europeans continue to push their models around the world. Bill, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is you have written a paper called No Copy-Paste, What Not to Emulate from Europe's Agricultural Regulation. What do you think about that in the context of American agriculture? What are some of the big takeaways? What do you think U.S. producers really need to avoid for ag policy here in the U.S.? So I think what European farmers have done is sort of waved this through uh, for, for, for a couple of decades. Um, every new regulation just affected the niche part uh, of farming and, uh, and, and the farmers unions would always say, yes, okay, let's do this. Uh, we'll do it in, uh, in light of the sustainability claims that the European Union would make. And this is sort of mounted up to an extent where now farmers are protesting. Oh, you saw many American Many of you, uh, many in your American audience probably have seen the protests that happened in the Netherlands, uh, where farmers, uh, Dutch farmers are incentivized by the government to give up livestock farming in order to reduce the emissions from livestock farming. And uh, farmers have said, no, I don't want to be bought out by the government. I want to continue my work. And so I think we're going to be see, going to be seeing a lot more of those type of protests because farmers are in Europe are now realizing that those stringent regulations have now prevented European agriculture from being effective efficient and, uh, and sustainable. And Bill, as we look out to the future, you know, in the past, that hazard versus risk assessment, GM technology is something Europe has been slow to move forward on. But looking ahead, it seems as though emissions and greenhouse gases are going to be a, a core issue for European growers. What are you hearing from European farmers on the emissions? What's Where's that going in Europe? So what farmers are asking for is for impact assessments on those new rules. I mean, the rules that we have already are pretty bad, but the farm to fork strategy, which is sort of the roadmap of the European Union on what it wants to do in the future, uh, really slashes everything from synthetic fertilizer use to uh, synthetic pesticide use and wants to also reduce uh, livestock farming and, and farmland use. So I think there's going to be a lot of pushback over the next years. Right now, we're only seeing that farmers are demanding to know what the impact will be. And when USDA did an impact assessment, they found out it would be devastating for European agriculture. And I can't imagine a worse moment to increase food prices than right now, when food price inflation is at record highs. And Europeans, even before COVID, were spending considerably more on food than Americans were. And so, Bill, with food price inflation going so high, particularly in Europe, is that changing the way the EU regulators are looking at ag policy? Are they taking note of rising prices? So there's been some hesitant criticism on the, on the plans. I know that French President Emmanuel Macron was saying that maybe the future reforms should be on halt. Uh, there's been some hesitancy, but a lot of people have staked their reputation on this. So what, I, what um, governments in Europe are doing right now is handing out specific checks. So the French government, for instance, is giving a cost of living check to people. But that's just a temporary measure. And that won't really help. What we need to do, in my view, is really embrace innovation, which is something that I think uh, USDA has been putting an, an, an emphasis on, really marks the stark difference between Europe and the US uh, by saying we need more innovation to bring costs down. Uh, right now, it's just a patchwork of policies across the EU, and I don't think it's really going to be addressing the issues. Um, I think some elections will probably be necessary uh, for, uh, uh, for the political landscape to change and for people to be able to, to believe that it's politically viable to change course. 
That certainly makes sense. Lots to unpack over the coming years in the EU. Now, Bill, can you tell our listeners where can they go and read your policy paper, No Copy Paste? So you can find it on consumerchoicecenter.org, and there's the publications page, and you can find different research papers that I've published, everything from the No Copy Paste to um, us making uh, European lawmakers aware on mycotoxin contamination, sustainable agriculture, what do we actually need for the future, and the necessary change in rules to allow gene editing in the European Union as well. So uh, all of that can be found online on consumerchoicecenter.org. Fantastic, folks. Check that out. Investigate what's happening over there in Europe. These ripples do impact around the world. We've been talking with Bill Wirtz, Senior Policy Analyst at the Consumer Choice Center. Bill, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. And folks, stick around. We'll talk about the cattle industry with Ethan Lane from NCBA when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Each season, farmers put it all on the line. So it's just good business to get every advantage you can. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend crop system created the Spray Early Weed Control Guarantee. When you spray before or at planting, you can give yourself a season-long advantage over weeds, and it can help boost your yield potential. Show weeds you mean business and learn more about guaranteed weed control at roundupreadyextend.com slash sprayearly. Guarantee is subject to program terms and conditions. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. 
Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Certainly appreciate you joining us today. And as we move this week forward, we're actually seeing some action happen in Washington, D.C. The House of Representatives finally got themselves a speaker. Joining us for an update on how that is going to impact committee assignments and legislation throughout the year. We're joined now by Ethan Lane, Vice President of Government Affairs at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And Ethan, it's got to be a bit of a relief to see a speaker named and voted into position there in the House. (laughs) Well, yeah, better late than never. Uh, We do have a speaker. Uh, They are now getting down to business with the rest of that process of of building out a new Congress. You know, committee chairmen need to be named. Ratios for Republicans to Democrats on committees need to be determined. And then populating those committees uh, is the next big challenge before the steering committee. So that's a lot of the focus this week up on Capitol Hill. It is. And this is where, Ethan, a lot of the interesting things happen in Washington, D.C. When we think about the committees that matter for agriculture, of course, the House Committee on Ag is going to be one of the big ones. Post-election, heading into this new Congress, are we anticipating any big changes to the House Ag Committee? You know, it it has become one of the most popular committees for new members uh, coming in from from around the country. So there's only so many spots they can fill. and, And, you know, by and large, members of Congress want to be able to tell their constituents they're working on committees that matter uh, back in the district. So if you're from parts of the West, the Natural Resources Committee is the committee to be on. If you're in farm country, it's agriculture. Um, in other parts of the country, you know, transportation or whatever else. And that jockeying is all happening behind the scenes and has been for quite some time. What we'll likely see is some members that were on the Ag Committee in the 117th go to some other committees, um, you know, Ag is one of those committees where uh, you don't necessarily get two or three. Um, There are some bigger committees where the workload is enough that that's kind of your specialty. So we'll see some members have to make some choices over the next couple of days. But, uh, you know, we do think the leadership we know is kind of set. GT Thompson is going to be chairman. David Scott's going to be ranking member. Uh, So what we're really looking at there is what those membership lists are going to look like from around the country um, and and how that's going to be populated. And so, Ethan, once we get the committees put together, of course, then they break down even further into subcommittees. How long does really staffing all of this take? Do you anticipate a couple more weeks before we've got everybody in the role they're shooting for? Well, you know, you have the members going into those roles, but then the committee staff kind of uh, tends to sort of ride along uh, behind the scenes. So, you know, those conversations with with the staff in those committees is always happening in the background. Now, a new chairman might elect to change some of those staff, and we do see that from time to time. We don't anticipate seeing any of those big changes at the Ag Committee. One of the big things that happens in a changeover from one party leadership to the other is staff sizes change. 
So if you were in the majority and you maybe had 35 or 40 members of your staff at a committee, uh, you might only get 25 now. And we saw that here in the last few days, I think 10 or 15 members of the Democratic side of the uh, House Agriculture Committee staff uh, have been told they're not going to have spots in this new Congress. Um, so that's shrinking. The Republicans are going to grow um, and we'll see that changeover happen over the next couple of days. But behind the scenes, those committee staff tend to be kind of a little bit more static and, and you know, professional uh, in those roles doing those jobs. All right, so no major changes anticipated for the Ag Committee, but as you mentioned, they're still sorting out some of the chairmanships for other committees. What's the other major action happening on the House side today or this week? Well, the, the, the piece of legislation Republicans have said they're going to lead with is really focused on those 87,000 new IRS agents. Um, that is going to be the first bill out of the chute. Uh, we do expect them to start working on that this week on the House floor, um, uh, perhaps, perhaps today, and, and voting on a bill to claw back that $80 billion that was appropriated uh, last summer as part of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Um, there's some arguing over the CBO score, how much that's really going to cost over a 10-year period, but it's one that Republican members in this new Congress heard loud and clear from their constituents around the country uh, that they want to see action on. Now, the Senate is going to have a different opinion on that, and unlikely, un undoubtedly the president will too, but this is going to be kind of the first salvo from House Republicans uh, that they're focused on some of those issues they view as a real problem coming out of the last Congress. And, you know, we haven't talked much about the Senate side on the Senate Ag Committee. Have there been any big changes resulting from the election? Well, uh, not not really. I mean, we're going to see Debbie Stabenow still as the chair of that committee and, and John Bozeman from Arkansas is the ranking member. However, we did hear Debbie Stabenow announce a few weeks ago that this will be her last uh, her last Congress and that she will not be running for reelection. So, you know, that obviously injects a little bit of intrigue and mystery into the process. She's done a farm bill before. She knows what she's doing. Um, but, you know, speculation now starts on what a succession plan looks like. Who's the uh, who, who's going to be the next lead Democrat uh, coming out of this process. So uh, that's probably the biggest item of news that we've seen on that front is, is uh, when a high profile member like that uh, makes an announcement that they're going to step away at the end of this Congress. Yes, indeed. And uh, that was kind of surprising to see. It will be interesting to see how leadership changes and what new voices arise in the Senate to fill uh, Senator Sabinow's spot. I'm wondering from a farm bill perspective, Ethan, does a one week delay in Congress getting started throw timing off all that much on such a massive piece of legislation? No, I, I think the challenges for the farm bill are much greater than the clock. It's 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 going to be a lot of the same dynamics that you saw play out last week in that speaker fight. You know, you have twenty uh, members of the House Republican Conference that 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 clearly have signaled they're not going to just kind of go along to get along, um, and that's going to have ramifications for large spending packages, of which the farm bill is certainly uh, in that category. Uh, you know, you're talking about a trillion dollar piece of legislation when you adjust it for inflation. Um, and a lot of that spending is is in those nutrition programs that that, that a lot of conservative Republicans bristle at. So I, I think that, you know, the, the week late start, uh, Chairman G.T. Thompson already has his plan set out. I think he's going to hit the ground running as soon as possible with hearings and oversight and, and moving through that process. Um, but that's going to be the real challenge there is, is overcoming some of those sort of uh, uh, ideological objections to the idea of the bill in general from some of these newly minted House Republicans. Yeah, that's a really good point, Ethan. We've got all of these new faces, all of these new ideas in Washington, D.C. Looking out to this legislative calendar, are there any places where the House and Senate are aligned on a piece of legislation, something we could see both houses get across the finish line fairly quickly, or are they still just sorting it out? 
sorting it out is a is a really diplomatic way to put it. Um, I, I I don't know that there's a tremendous amount of alignment uh, at this point. It's still very early, um, but you know a lot less change as we were saying in the in the Senate. You know they're they're sort of watching things play out in the House, um, and and there's far less drama going on over in the Senate side. But clearly strong opinions. Um, you know, new new leadership in the appropriations side over there. We had all those departures in Senate appropriations, folks like Richard Shelby that had been there for a very long time, uh, Senator Leahy as well. Um, so that's going to be the biggest change is is the funding piece, which is going to be no, not insignificant. You know, obviously, debt ceiling is going to come up this year. That was a big negotiating point in that speaker fight last week. House Republicans are uh, some of them are, are really itching for a fight over the debt ceiling. Um, so there are going to be some some financial arguments this year that um, certainly the House and Senate are going to are going to need to spend some some uh, long hours behind closed doors together trying to iron out those differences. Yeah, I think we're going to hear that a lot, a lot of back and forth between those two houses. Ethan, it is hard to believe, but we are only a few short weeks away from the cattle industry getting together in New Orleans for Cattle Convention February 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Of course, you're going to be there, I imagine, talking policy. What's on your mind as you prepare to meet with all these folks down in New Orleans later on this month? Well, this is this is the most important part of what we do in, in my office here in Washington. This is where we get to check in with our members from around the country, with our state affiliates from around the country, and make sure that we have the freshest marching orders possible on what they want to see in Washington, what they don't want to see, and how they want to prioritize our engagement here. Uh, this week, we have all of our committee chairmen in town from around the country, about 50 people that, that, that are the chairs and vice chairs that run that grassroots policy process, and that'll kick off in New Orleans here first week in, in uh, February, and we will get into the weeds on every issue from taxes to farm bill policy to natural resources to endangered species to clean water and air, uh, trade, uh, cattle markets, you name it. Um, this is really an exciting time in our policy process, so we're really looking forward to it. Absolutely. It's going to be here before we know it. Ethan, you mentioned endangered species. We had some news from the Lesser Prairie Chicken just prior to Thanksgiving. Looking out this year, do you see more action on that endangered species front from Washington? Unfortunately, the Endangered Species Act is one of those things that is always looming over the cattle industry's shoulder. We are the largest land user. Uh, we're the largest steward of those resources. Typically, these endangered species only still exist because of the management our producers are putting on the ground. Nevertheless, we always end up being a target of a broken piece of legislation, a, a broken law in the Endangered Species Act. So um, we're just getting started on the Lesser Prairie Chicken. That is going to be a big fight um, and impacts a lot of producers across the country. And we know there are more species in the, in the hopper. We're hearing a lot about bees. We're hearing a lot about bats. We're hearing about butterflies. Um, we, and, and, you know, a thousand other small unnamed species that haunt producers in one particular area or another. Um, it, you know, in a divided Congress with a Democratic White House, we, we know that's going to be a tough time to work on endangered species. Nevertheless, we're going to have to keep taking these species one by one and trying to protect producers wherever we can. Absolutely. That's what it's all about, folks. Get CattleCon on your schedule February 1st, 2nd, and 3rd in New Orleans. We've been talking with Ethan Lane, Vice President of Government Affairs at the National Cattle Miss Beef Association. Ethan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. And folks, stay with us. We're going to talk commodity prices with Arlen Suderman of Stonex when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. 
On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. And to do that, we are joined this month by the Market Development Action Team member Troy Schneider. Troy grows corn in eastern Colorado and recently had the chance to travel with NCGA to the European-U.S. collaboration platform on ag. Troy, what did you learn? We attended after the the collaboration platform on ag, we attended the European Union's ninth annual agricultural outlook forum. You know, everybody's hearing about farm to fork and their green deal over in Europe. My opinion is this is USDA's way of having a conversation, having an open dialogue with our counterparts in the EU and trying to understand where some of their policies are coming from, where they're wanting to go and answering our questions and our concerns as to how that will affect us. You know, like you said, we have to defend our markets. Thank you, Troy. And folks, tune in to the next Monthly Grind live at the Cattle Convention in New Orleans. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risva with this market update. Grains are under pressure this morning with livestock mixed. Hogs are down. Fats and feeders are seeing some support, though. USDA this morning said that 6.9 million bushels of U.S. corn were sold to Mexico for 22-23. And according to Reuters, the director of India's Institute of Wheat and Barley Research said India could be on track for a record crop of 112 million metric tons or 4.12 billion bushels in 2023. Exporters shipped 40.9 million bushels of U.S. soybeans to China in the week ending January 5th. Shipments are trending lower as the availability of new crop Brazilian supplies nears very short term here. China has already switched to its purchases to new crop Brazilian supplies, which will gradually become the dominant source of shipments as those supplies increase at Brazilian ports in the weeks ahead. Chinese buyers bought 21 cargoes of beans in the past week as they extended coverage ahead of the Chinese Lunar New Year holiday that goes from January 21st to the 27th. Just one of those cargoes was purchased from the United States for immediate January shipment. 19 of the 21 cargoes were purchased from Brazil for February and March, and the remaining cargo was purchased from Brazil for a June shipment. Now, soybean shipments are down 8% from the same period last year, and corn exports have plunged 32%. Commitments from overseas buyers to purchase wheat are better, up 5% year over year, but soybean sales are down 6%, and corn sales have dropped 47% from the same time frame from last year. Now, the weekly export sales report showed sales of 47,100 metric tons of wheat versus 478,100 tons a week earlier. But that lower total was from the seven days that included Christmas. Corn sales dropped to 319,200 metric tons from 781,600 tons. Soybean sales were actually higher, rising to 721,000 metric tons from 705,800 tons a week earlier. This is AOA for the American Egg Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council.
You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and our next focus is the markets. Joining us now is Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for StoneX. And Arlen, appreciate you joining us today. Hey, it's good to be back with you, and a Happy New Year to all of our listeners. Happy New Year indeed, Arlen. It is not a Happy New Year necessarily today for wheat producers. Wheat off double digits on the day. What's going on in that market? Yeah, I, I speak in a, speaking over in, in a conference over the weekend, and I made the comment kind of off the cuff, but I kind of like it. I think it's true, even though I don't like the implications. Uh, trading wheat right now is a little bit like trading Bitcoin um, when you look at the factors that are moving it from day to day and the correlations with our fundamentals. We've got wheat farmers in the plane saying, why are prices going lower uh, when our crop looks so bad and when Argentina has such a short crop and world supplies of milling wheat are so tight? Uh, it all comes down to perceptions of the money that's flowing and the computers that are driving these markets. We were up initially on Friday and, and Monday uh, with kind of a positive euphoria that uh, the Fed would have to pivot its uh, monetary policy taken from one data point in the jobs report. That kind of gave the commodities a lift, and we kind of tried to ride that tide as well. Um, but then things started going south yesterday and then later on in, in overnight and then this morning. Uh, when traders saw the, the private um, estimates, ahead of Thursday's USDA WASDE report on a small grain summer report. So expectations are that uh, winter wheat acres are going to increase uh, from 33.3 million acres up to 34.5 million acres, according to the average private estimates. And I would argue that some of the that the USDA is at risk of even going higher than that. Uh, I think that really shocked the market. I don't know why it should have been surprising other than the fact that many fund managers and buyers and many of these markets really don't understand the dynamics of what's going on. It's been extremely dry, historically dry, in the southwestern third of the Plains Hard Red River Wheat Belt. And that's our largest class of wheat production in the United States, and we just came off of a, an extremely short crop. And so prices were high when insurance rates were set for this new crop year. So farmers dusted in, they had every incentive in the world to put that wheat seed in the dust because of the high insurance incentive and then pray for rain. And if the rains come, then they can harvest a crop this next spring. If they can just kind of get a plant there, vernalized before the spring, and get something going because spring rains make the biggest difference. But if they don't come, they've got insurance coverage. And so while seeding in this report will probably show a significant acreage, that may have little correlation to what's finally harvested come June and July. That is a crucial point, Arlen. Thanks for bringing that up. And I'm wondering, as you think ahead to Thursday's reports from the USDA, we'll have the World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates out Thursday morning. What, what else are you anticipating? Any big surprises there, folks, should be taking action ahead of the report? 
Yeah, I, I think as we look at this report and where we'll probably see the changes, obviously there's been a lot of focus on Argentina, and that's continuing to provide some underlying support to the soybean market. Drought has been significant there. We continue to see forecast for rain showers. Rain showers come, but the amounts aren't as much as forecast, and they've been seeing some extreme heat as well. So crops are being stressed. Uh, they have a very long planting season there that goes from October uh, really to the end of January, and so that gives them some flexibility, but we're getting toward the end of that planting season, and we may see some soybean acres simply not even get planted. Uh, the first quarter of the corn crop is already in the grain fill stage and hurt significantly by the drought, whereas the last part of the corn crop is just now being planted. And obviously, if the rains would start coming, it could do very well. And so USDA usually is somewhat conservative. We're seeing our contacts in Argentina go ahead and lower their production estimates significantly. I think based on USDA's history, we'll see USDA modestly lower their corn and soybean production estimates for Argentina on Thursday and then see more significant cuts in February and then maybe in March as well. Um, with Brazil, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a small downtick in production estimates, but their corn and soybean production estimates are still going to be massive and big. Um, it's even possible we could see a small uptick there, but the bottom line is only tweaking those numbers. No big changes in, in the Brazil numbers at all as they very early in our harvest period. And the crops overall look good. Maybe 15 to 20% of the crops, corn and soybean crops, are facing some degree of stress. That's typical in any normal growing season, be it here in the Midwest or down there. Um, so how the trade focuses on that will be a question. And then we come to the U.S. balance sheet. We'll get the final production numbers uh, for corn and soybeans and, and really most of the crops for this past year. And so we do expect some adjustments there. I look back historically at the last 25 years, and it's very rare for those adjustments to be significant. Um, personally, we're looking for a, a modest upward adjustment in corn and soybeans, and then USDA may cut them back again come next September. But that's kind of what we're looking at uh, for the U.S. balance sheet. But more significantly, I think we'll see another big cut in exports of corn. But I wouldn't be surprised if the quarterly stocks data would suggest an increase in feed usage because I think when USDA first made their balance sheet for this year and factored in the smaller corn crop, they expected high prices to ration feed demand. And, and what we did instead, because of low water levels in Mississippi, we rationed export demand and allowed feed demand to hold in there. And so I think they overcut, they overdid it on their cuts to feed demand. And I think we'll see a bounce back on feed demand, offsetting some of the lost exports. Arlen, given the uh, the projection for lower exports in the year ahead, where is the global corn balance sheet changing? I mean, we've got supplies here in this country. It looks like we might have some coming in South America, but it seems like globally, corn is the market that still seems fundamentally tight. Yeah, and the market's really not too worried about that at this point, but you're right. I've went back and 
and looked at global corn stocks and changed them into as a percent of annual usage. So as demand goes up, you, you need to have bigger supplies to keep that pipeline flowing. And global corn supplies as a percent of annual usage have been declining for the last 50 years. And that's because the world's become more and more comfortable with just-in-time supplies. We had a big upward adjustment here about eight, eight uh, what was it, uh, I think it was about five, six years ago because USDA upwardly adjusting Chinese stocks and that needed to happen, but they overdid it to the upside. And I think they're too high by about 49 million metric tons. That's a considerable amount. So when you look at world corn stocks minus China and minus US, see what's the picture of the rest of the world? It's about a 39-day supply. That's about as tight as what we've been over over the last couple of decades. So we don't have a lot of wiggle room there. Ukraine is uh, was able to export some corn with the grain initiative there, but they're not able to produce very much right now because of the war, and they're going to be producing even less this next year. So it's really putting the pressure on U.S. and South America to do the production of corn. And uh, as we look, we'd already talked about Argentina's problems in producing this year. And the other thing that we're looking at is, yes, if we go to an El Nino weather pattern this summer, that could favor a big crop in the U.S. by fall, by the end of the year. But in between them, we normally count on that Safrina corn crop. And if we make that transition from La Nina to El Nino over the next couple of months, that tends to shift the um, monsoon rains to the south of the major production areas for safrina corn and could negatively impact the Brazil crop. Um, and so we may still have some excitement in this corn market before we see an El Nino crop here in the United States uh, later in the year. Arlen, does that excitement in the corn market, is any of that trickling down to basis across the countryside here in the new year? Well, basis has been a tale of two stories. It's very, very strong over $2 up to $2.40 over uh, in in the western feedlot region uh, to more normal levels or maybe a little above normals in the east. And that's evened out somewhat as we've moved some supplies west and, and dozens and dozens of trains moving to the west. Um, but it's kind of calmed down right now. And then, But the big question is still ahead of us. How are we going to do when it comes April and May and then June, July, particularly if we have a short wheat crop out there with very little feed, feed wheat? And so I think basis is going to stay above normal levels as we go through the year. I think we still may have some volatility head for us. The question is what will futures do between now and then? Um, but I think basis is going to stay at relatively high levels, especially in the western part of the belt. And then we have to watch and see if this rail situation gets straightened out or if we have some more rail problems ahead because of a mass retirement of people upset with a recent uh, agreement, job labor agreement. Arlen, are you hearing that already across the countryside, disruptions in rail service? Uh, what we're hearing is a lot of upset rail workers who are just hanging around long enough to get their bonuses and stuff that were in the agreement and then plan on retiring. And these trains have, are very minimally staffed right now. So if that happens, that could create some significant disruptions if these rumors come to fruition here over the next few months. It will be interesting to watch that. I've heard similar stories from friends who work for the Class 1 Railroads folks. Is Supply chain issues might not be out of the rearview mirror quite yet. We've been talking with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with Stonex. And Arlen, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. 
And folks, stay with us when AOA returns. We're going to talk with Mike Wilson of Farm Futures about some new technology that's been unveiled here to start the year. Stick around for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination, our honesty, our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Will Stafford, CHS Washington representative, about what we're learning from this most recent omnibus bill. Will, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Will, what was in this omnibus bill that finally came out of Congress? Anything of note for cooperative owner members? First of all, they funded the government through it. So that's always a good thing and something we like to see happen. But all the time at the end of these, you know, these end of the year, large package pieces of legislation, they add things to that that maybe have lots of support within Congress, but for whatever reason have not gotten across the finish line. And one of those specifically that we did see get included in the omnibus and signed into law is a piece of legislation that we've been very supportive at CHS called the Growing Climate Solutions Act. And that piece of legislation really aims to break down barriers so that farmers are more able to participate in some of these private carbon markets that are popping up. It adds a lot of certainty to the carbon markets um, that can be kind of the Wild West right now. It gets USDA involved, establishes a, a certified provider program, things like that that we're very excited to see happen. Well, with that Growing Climate Solutions Act, do we expect the rules to come out piece by piece over this next year? 
That is unclear. There are some time frames established in the law for USDA to abide by, but how fast they'll do that will be slightly open, I guess, to USDA. But I would expect most of it to get done within this next 12 months. One piece of that that we are very excited for USDA to start talking about is they are required to have an advisory panel um, that will be very grower focused, which we're happy to see. And we really do hope that they will uh, include cooperatives on that advisory council that they will put together for this. Thanks to Will Stafford for joining us this week around the table. And thank you for joining us here. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Each season, farmers put it all on the line. So it's just good business to get every advantage you can. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend crop system created the Spray Early Weed Control Guarantee. When you spray before or at planting, you can give yourself a season-long advantage over weeds, and it can help boost your yield potential. Show weeds you mean business and learn more about guaranteed weed control at roundupreadyextend.com slash sprayearly. Guarantee is subject to program terms and conditions. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues this morning, and now it's time to take a look over at the world of technology. Joining us now is Mike Wilson, executive editor at Farm Futures Magazine. And Mike, you recently had a chance to do a little digging on a new product from Alphabet, the Google parent company. What are they bringing into agriculture? Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, And you're right about the word digging, because they have a new company that they have now launched uh, called Mineral. Uh, Alphabet, as you might know, uh, is this so-called, uh, they have what they call the X, which is their moonshot factory. It's a place where they put uh, lots of great, really intelligent people and resources, and they start thinking about <clears throat> big dreams and how can we solve radical problems with radical thinking. So I guess that's where the name moonshot comes from. And Mineral is their agriculture subsidy. It has just been launched today. And their main purpose is to uh, radically ramp up, ramp up the agriculture sustainability across the planet. And how do they plan to do that? When I think Google, when I think Alphabet, Mike, I don't necessarily think dirt under the fingernails getting out there, turning the soil. What are they going to be doing with Mineral? Well, they have been vetting uh, technology that's uh, almost, it, it's almost impossible for uh, a feeble ag reporter to describe. But I was able to get uh, an inside look at the uh, Moonshot factory last week in Silicon Valley. Uh, there's several different technologies. The idea here is not to, to uh, have just one uh, tech piece that gets commercialized, but rather 50, 60, 70, 80 different kinds of technologies 
that will analyze plants, that will uh, drive over crops. They have allegedly now analyzed 10% of the world's farmland with their technology. Uh, this rover is what I call it, and you can see this story today on farmfutures.com. Uh, it's a rover, it's called Rover, and it drives over the plants, um, any crop practically. They've, they've, they've analyzed like 15 different crops already, and they have a terabyte of data that they collect each day on these plants with different growing conditions in different parts of the world. So what they will do is license this technology to any car any partner that comes along like a Syngenta or Corteva or a small small holder farmer uh, technology. It could be for Africa, it could be for the Corn Belt, it could be for anywhere. And this is their plan is to help uh, launch all that, distribute that kind of technology out into the world using other uh, established ag partners. It's fascinating to see these these little robots moving across the field. Mike, in your story, you mentioned that they're already doing some work with Driscoll's, the berry company. Are they analyzing strawberries? Exactly. Uh, Driscoll's is very interested and keen to partner with uh, Mineral because they have an interesting technology where you will take uh, picked berries across uh, some sort of a platform and an, an, an analysis sensor kind of technology. It's basically all about artificial intelligence and machine learning right now. It will, it will take a look, it will take a, a video or a photo of berries and instantly be able to tell you that berry is bruised, that berry is not yet ripe, these four berries are fine. And so it's it's going to have an amazing effect on quality assurance for these companies. It's fascinating to see the ag industry fully embrace technology and continue to push it to the next level. And Mike, I understand that will likely be one of the topics under discussion at the Farm Futures Business Summit and Boot Camp coming up later on this month. Can you give our listeners an update when and where is that event going to be happening? Well, thank you for mentioning it. We are looking forward to having everyone come out to Coralville, Iowa, that's near Iowa City, Iowa. Uh, on January 18th, we will have our Ag Finance Boot Camp. This is a one-day session where you can amp up your ag finance and management and business skills. And then on January 19th and 20th, we will be holding the Farm Futures Business Summit. And we'll be talking not only about technology, but about global ag uh, supply and demand, uh, estate planning, uh, how to do a better job communicating with your your family and a family business, which is obviously a big deal for almost every one of our readers. Uh, and just a, a myriad of topics. We'll be talking about interest rates and inflation and how you can do a better job uh, managing your costs and uh, time management. Just a lot of really practical things. We'll have farmer panels. We'll have Dr. Dave Cole there. Jolene Brown will be there. A Canadian futurist named Rob Sake will be presenting at the dinner. Uh, just an interesting uh, agenda. And you can see all of that agenda at farmfuturesummit.com. Absolutely. And of course, the business summit is the 19th and the 20th. And Mike, as you mentioned, the Farm Futures Boot Camp is on the 18th. And I'm curious, who should be looking at the boot camp? What is, who is that content geared for? It is about ag finance, but mostly it's a way to, to go in and and get a one-day uh, session where you can boost your, your confidence in how you run your business, how you run your farm as a business. This has been sort of our mantra all along with these uh, events. 
is trying to help our audience run their their farms as a business. You you will have a chance to hear people talk about benchmarking. In other words, what are your statistics about your business show uh, in relation to other farms of the same size? Uh, you'll hear people talking about things like deferred taxes. You know, we do a lot of uh, deferring of taxes, you know, to trying to avoid taxes in, our, in farms. And at some point when you retire, you have a, a bit of an issue. So you have to try and work around this tax uh, obligation. And then we'll have sessions on cost management, uh, how to market uh, your crop when, when, you know, try and get the best price and reduce your risks. So it's really a, and you know who would really benefit from this is young farmers. Uh, I think that this is a, a good chance for them to, to really learn some skills and talk to other people about how they run their business. Absolutely, folks. Get it on your schedule. Go to farmfuturesummit.com to get registered. We've been talking with Mike Wilson, executive editor at Farm Futures Magazine. And Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll talk markets with Darren Newsom and we'll dig into dairy with Lucas Fuse. We'll see you then for more AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. And to do that, we are joined this month by the Market Development Action Team member Troy Schneider. Troy grows corn in eastern Colorado and recently had the chance to travel with NCGA to the European-U.S. collaboration platform on ag. Troy, what did you learn? We attended after the the collaboration platform on ag, we attended the European Union's ninth annual agricultural outlook forum. You know, everybody's hearing about farm to fork and their green deal over in Europe. My opinion is this is USDA's way of having a conversation, having an open dialogue with our counterparts in the EU and trying to understand where some of their policies are coming from, where they're wanting to go and answering our questions and our concerns as to how that will affect us. You know, like you said, we have to defend our markets. Thank you, Troy. And folks, tune in to the next monthly grind live at the Cattle Convention in New Orleans. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track, no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council.